Any kids want to go to children's church may do so, kindergarten to second grade. But the rest of you open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation, last book of the Bible. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, you can use one of those in front of you. Revelation, this morning and we're chapter 6. We're studying verses 9 to 11. If you're just joining us, just like to welcome you, we're studying through the book of Revelation sort of bit by bit, and we're here in chapter 6. It's a really challenging book, but amazingly practical when you really get into it, amazingly how it, it speaks to our lives. So let me read today's text that we're going to study. It's Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that the Holy Spirit is real and that you've given the Holy Spirit to us. Thank you, Lord, for these testimonies we've heard. And God, it's so evident that your Holy Spirit is what changes lives. Thank you, Lord, for Mary's testimony of conversion and how the Spirit changed her. Thank you for the testimonies we heard at the 830 service, different stories of young people and Different age, all different ages, Lord. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit is not a respecter of age or position or wealth or poverty, Lord, but that as you choose, you open up hearts and people believe. And so, Lord, because we believe in the Holy Spirit, we can have confidence to study the Bible right now because we believe your Holy Spirit can help us to see what you want to say to us. Lord, we just admit that if your Spirit doesn't help us, we're just going to read these words and they're going to go right by us, Lord. But if your Holy Spirit is in it, these words will penetrate our hearts. And so, God, you know what everyone needs to hear this morning. This is your word. These are your people. I don't know all of their lives, Lord, but you do. And I thank you that you know exactly what you need to say to each person. So we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, we started to wrestle with the thorny theological question of the problem of evil in God's world. You know, it's this age-old dilemma that if God is sovereign and God is good and holy, then why does it seem like His world is filled with sin, evil, wickedness, disobedience? The two just don't seem to go together sometimes. Uh, And I think, as, as we talked about last Sunday, it's a particularly kind of challenging issue for us as Christians because we're the children of God. He, you know, He loves us. He, he sent Jesus to die for us. We're told in the Scriptures how much He loves us. And yet we look at our lives and some of the trials Christians have to go through. Not only here in this country, but other countries where people are persecuted for their faith. And we sort of say, God, why, why are your children being treated like this? You know, we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. I don't know about you. When I, when I spend a lot of dough on something and buy something big, and I get very protective of it. You know, like kids, you can't, Go near that because Daddy spent a lot of money on that, you know. So don't touch it. Be careful with it. Everyone treat it with respect. Why don't you all just stop looking at it, okay? Because I spent a lot of, 
what, you know, whatever it is, you become very protective. And I think I've been bought with the blood of Christ, the most precious commodity in the universe. So why isn't God equally protective of me? Why, why am I going through trials and difficulties and challenges? Why do believers go through these things? And so last Sunday, we, we sort of had a partial answer to that question. We looked at Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. That was our text last Sunday. And we saw the famous or infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Do you remember those four horsemen? Jesus was opening up the scroll and there's seven seals. He opens the first four seal and each seal on the scroll unleashes one of the horsemen of the apocalypse. There was the white horse of conquest. There was the red horse of warfare. There was the black horse of famine. And then we studied the, the green or the pale horse of death itself. And we saw that these forces are unleashed in the world. And again, we asked the question, God, why do these things happen? And what we saw is, yes, those things are in the world, but Jesus is the one opening the seals. Jesus is sovereign. And somehow, mysteriously, God accomplishes his purposes and his will, even through the very forces that stand opposed to his will. That God is so great that he uses even things that he opposes to accomplish what he wants to be done. And so we saw that's part of the answer to the question. But this morning I want to take it a step further here with this next uh, vision because really that's part of the answer, but it's not a complete answer. Because how long is that going to go on? You know, that's the question they ask here. Look in verse 10. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord? I, I entitled my sermon, How Long, O Lord? In other words, yes, there's evil and sin and disobedience in the world. Yes, God is sovereign over it. But that still leaves a question, which is, okay, how long is this state of affairs going to go on? How long will it be that God will continue to rule over evil? Is this the way the universe will always be? Forever and ever, world without end, ad infinitum, that forever and ever there will be this sort of eternal dualism between God and bad things happening in the world and God overruling them, but will they keep going? Or will there be a point when God will decisively break in and forever end what's wrong with this world to send it away so that God reigns in his kingdom unmolested and, and unopposed? Will that time ever come, or is it just going to be like this forever? So that's the sort of sort of the second answer to the question of, of the problem of evil is, okay, God, so you're using it, you're accomplishing good things through evil, but Lord, how long until you finally say, and now evil will be done away with forever? And so this is the question before us, that sort of second part of a reflection on the problem of evil. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you, judge the, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth, and avenge our blood. So that's the question I want to wrestle with. But before we ask the question, let's go back one verse to verse 9, and let's first study who's asking the question, because I think it really sets the, the frame here. It says in verse 9, When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So here's the lamb. He's opening up the seals. And he comes to this fifth seal, and now we have this strange vision. There's an altar, there's some souls. What, what is this vision of? Um, I, I believe what this is, is it's a picture of the deceased faithful Christians in heaven who have served the Lord, and in some cases have given their lives, and are now in the Lord's presence. So in other words, the first four seals are more focused on the cataclysms here on earth. But now with the fifth seal, the camera pans upward, 
And we have this vision of heaven where people who have served the Lord faithfully and are now in the Lord's presence are, are, are living in God's presence and, and they're crying out to the Lord. Now, why do I think that's the case? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain. So one of the things we see in Revelation is that there's an altar in heaven. In other words, the, the throne room of God in heaven in Revelation looks a lot like the Old Testament temple. It has temple features. Or actually, probably the better way to put it is the Old Testament temple looked a lot like God's throne room in heaven because that's what it was patterned after. So in God's throne room in Revelation, there's his throne, there's an altar, there's a golden lampstand. It has all these this kind of temp, temple furniture there in heaven. So, so I see the altar elsewhere in Revelation in heaven. So that tells me we're looking at a heavenly scene. And then I think the other reason why this is the heavenly scene is because there's people there who've been slain. They haven't been raised from the dead yet. This isn't the final scene. So this is some sort of in-between thing where people have died for Christ. They're in his presence, but we haven't yet come to the final judgment day. You know, they're still crying out, how long, O Lord? So it hasn't happened yet. So this must be the in-between part where, you know, the communion of the saints who are with the Lord in heaven. And notice that it's saints who've, who've been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So it's specifically a focus upon believers who've died because of their stand for Christ. Because they've held to the Word of God. Because they have held to the Gospel. Some have paid the ultimate price with their own blood because they've held to the blood of Christ. And there they are in heaven. I mean, that's why they're under the altar. Right? The sacrifice. They've sacrificed themselves and just as in the Old Testament the blood was poured at the base of the altar, so now these these uh, martyrs appear at the base of the altar as well, and, and that's where they are. Now I, I would I would also argue that that these these people here are really kind of the victims of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So how you know how do these people die? Well, for their faith. But if you go back, you look. There's some parallels and some connections between the four horsemen and these people. Look at verse nine. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been, see that word, slain. Now, that same Greek word appears a few verses earlier in verse 4. Go back to chapter 6, verse 4. It says, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. It was rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. Same Greek word. Or look up at uh, Revelation 6, verse 11. It says, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed had been completed. Now that word killed appears just a few verses earlier in verse 8. I looked and there before me was a pale horse, verse 8. His rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him and they were giving power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword. So as the horses are riding out causing havoc, it appears that Followers of Jesus are not immune. That, that we are not somehow exempted from the difficulties that face the earth. We know that. right? And that it's part of those horsemen going out. There's also persecution against Christians. Christians are being conquered. Christians are being slain. Christians are being killed for their faith. And, and so these are those people who have been sort of trampled down by the horses. And now they're in the presence of God in heaven. I don't think it exclusively means those who've been killed. I mean, certainly other believers who've been faithful to the Lord are with him in the heaven. But, but I think in some ways the, those believers who've given their lives are kind of the, 
the ultimate expression of faithful Christians who suffered for their faith. Uh, they're kind of the MVPs of all the Christians. You know, you know in the Super Bowl when they, they hand out the Vince Lombardi trophy, they have a little platform at the end of the game, and the whole team doesn't stand on it. You know, it's like the MVP and the coach and the, the owner are all standing on the little platform getting the Vince Lombardi trophy. Uh, and, and so I think it's the same kind of thing here. The, the focus is upon the martyrs, but they really represent all the believers who have been faithful to the Lord and have not compromised their faith, even though it cost them something in this life. Now, this would have really been encouraging, I think, to the Christians who first received this letter in this whole revelation. Because a lot of those Christians in the first century living under the terror of Rome, they faced martyrdom. They faced imprisonment. It was not easy. It was not cheap being a Christian. You know, go back to Revelation chapter 2. Look at the church in Smyrna. Go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Revelation 2.10, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, church, I'm getting you ready. You're about to go through the ringer. Don't be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Could you imagine if that was facing our church? If some of us were going to go to prison for our faith, if some of us might even lose our lives for our faith? Incredible. Or look up at chapter 2, verse uh, 13. This is the church at Pergamum. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So apparently there's some guy there named Antipas. Get to meet him someday in heaven. They're like, oh, you're Antipas. I read about you. You know, you're put to death. What happened, dude? You know, and he'd tell me the story. Someday we'll meet, Ant- we'll meet Antipas if we're with the Lord. So there was some guy who was martyred. And so Jesus is saying, look, when Antipas died, the rest of you didn't flinch. You stood strong. You were faithful to my name. You didn't back off from God's word. You didn't back off from the gospel. You, you stood shoulder to shoulder and were willing to be identified with Jesus, even though it put you at risk of great personal loss, even the loss of your lives. So now, go back to Revelation 6. What happens to those people who, in the extreme case of being faithful for Christ, lose their lives? And the answer is they're, they're with the Lord under the altar. They're under His protection now. They're in His presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so that's where they are with the Lord. And you know, since the time of Christ and since the time of the writing of this, that population of people under the altar has only increased. Down through the centuries, people have faithfully stood for Christ. They've been thrown in prison. They've been tortured. They've lost jobs. They've lost loved ones. And in some cases, they've given their lives. And it just continues to go, go on today. People today are, are giving their lives for the gospel. And I think sometimes we forget about that because we live in Disneyland. <laughs> but other places in the world, this is not the case. Other places in the world, it's very costly to be a Christian. It can cost us their lives. Uh, whether it's the, uh, you know, the person in the prison camp in China uh, who is a pastor but is sort of labeled a political you know, uh, upstart who's causing trouble and, and they're suffering in that prison camp, maybe even to the point of death because of the harsh conditions. Or whether it's Christians who 
are being attacked in uh, southern India right now. There's, there's a lot of sort of Hindu nationalism in some of the southern provinces of India. And, and there's believers who are being openly attacked because they're Christians. Uh, or I just read on a website that sort of uh, covers uh, the, sort of the, the story of the persecuted church around the world. I was just reading last week, apparently, there's a report that last Sunday, while we were here, in a church in Laos of 48 believers was meeting. The authorities walked in with guns, took them out of the church to an open field, and confiscated all their property and burned some of their homes because they were believers. And so, you know, this is going on in the world. These things are happening. There's this book I've been reading. It's really been challenging me in a lot of ways. It's called The Heavenly Man. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's a biography of a guy named Brother Yun, who was one of the founders of the house church movement in China. I don't know if you know the story of the house church movement, but in 1950s-ish, whenever Chairman Mao took power in China, he kicked all the Western missionaries out. And so what was going to happen to the church? Well, what happened was God intervened, and he raised up churches and raised up house leaders. No one knows exactly how many believers there are in China now, but some estimates are like, you know, 80 million, 100 million. God has just exploded the church in China, and part of it's been this house church movement, which is interesting. But their story of the house church movement in China is not only the story of of victory and success, it's also the story of incredible suffering. You know, Yoon tells his story of being in prison, being beaten, being tortured, being deprived, being threatened with death. I mean, just the things they go through. I, I, I just feel like such a wimpy Christian when I look at what these other believers have stood for in the name of Christ. But he tells one story, not about himself, but about another believer, and her name is Sister Yuan. I just feel like I'm probably massacring her name, so my apologies to everyone who speaks Mandarin. Uh, but Sister Yuan... Uh, let me just read, read her story. She came from one of the wealthiest families in Shanghai. She was a Christian. She was a widow with two young children, a son aged 11 and her daughter 9, when she was imprisoned in 1967. After a year in prison, the police thought they would have compassion on her, and the chief warden said, This past year you've shown excellent conduct, so now we have a plan to reward you. All you have to do is write a confession of your crimes. And by confession of your crimes, what that means is, you know, renounce your your Christian faith and your, your teaching and all this. So write a confession of your crimes and you'll be free to go home and take care of your children. Surely God would want you to take care of your own flesh and blood. And so the authorities arranged for her to visit the prison, as sist- uh, arranged for her children to visit the prison. As soon as Sister Yuen saw them, her heart was torn and tears of love welled up in her eyes. The authorities asked her, What do you want, your Jesus or your children? If you want Jesus, you'll stay in prison. If you want your children, you can go home. And they gave her a pencil and a piece of paper and asked her to write down her choice. And when they read what she had written, they were amazed to find that she had stated in large words, Jesus cannot be replaced. Even my own children cannot replace Jesus. And Sister Yuen chose to stay in prison. The warden shouted, Listen, you kids, your mother has rejected you. She doesn't love you. And Sister Yuen was then sentenced to a further 23 years in prison. When she was released in 1981, her son was 34 years old and worked in a government job in Tibet. Sister Yuen hadn't seen either of her children, even once in all those intervening years. Her son had been taken by the state, raised in atheistic schools, and had been told his mother had disowned him. Many Christians had visited and shared the gospel with him, but he always responded by saying, Your Jesus took my mother away from me. Why should I believe in him? Sister Yuen traveled to Tibet to find her son. He rejected her, screamed that he had no mother, and pushed her from his home, and she's never seen her son again. How much 
do we love Jesus? What is he worth to us? You know, not that we all have to make a choice like that. But if we were forced to that choice, how much do I love Jesus? And that story hit me as a dad because, you know, I, I don't want to die, really. But even less, I would want my kids to be taken from me. You know, most parents have that instinct. I would die for my kids. So for me to hear that story of like, oh, yeah, take my life before you take my kids. You think like the price that people pay for the name of Jesus. How much do we love him? How much is he worth to us? Do I love Christ enough that I'm willing to be looked at as kind of a weirdo by people in New England? Do I love Jesus enough for people to label me born again or Bible thumper, holy roller, whatever, you know, kind of stereotypical box they just want to stick me into without talking to me? Am I okay with that? Am I okay to suffer that little tiny bit? Am I willing to endure economic setbacks? Am I willing to be in a job where if it gets known that I am a Christian because my, bo- my boss is so anti-Christian, it could affect my work and it could affect my career advancement. Do I love Christ enough that I'm willing to be lonely for Him? That, that you know, there's maybe a relationship that looks interesting, but I know that person doesn't know the Lord and, and I know what His Word says, that I need to, to, to only you know, be yoked with believers and so I don't pursue that relationship and I find myself lonely. You know, to, to be lonely for Christ. You know, just all those commitments we make because we're trying to hold to the Word of God and the testimony about Jesus. Are, are we willing to, to suffer uh, working in the church, <laughs> doing ministry? You know, ministry is tiring. It's taxing serving the Lord, holding up our testimony about Jesus. It's a lot of work. Are we willing to do that for the name of Christ? Um, and would I be willing to give my life for Christ or even my family members if he asked me? You know, this is part of Brother Yoon's story. He spent a lot of years in prison. You know, he goes into prison. His wife's pregnant. He comes out of prison. His wife has a four-year-old son. You know, that's a sacrifice. It's huge to not be raised with your kids all because you're standing for Christ. And I think that you can't make a decision like that if you're not really walking with the Lord. How does a person make a decision like that? You have to be walking with Christ. When that moment comes, if I'm not in a living, abiding relationship with Jesus, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to choose selfishness every time and choose my own comfort, my own happiness, instead of finding my happiness in the Lord. And what if we had to give our own lives? Would I really be ready? I don't know. You know, South Shore Baptist Church, is, it's a really cool period in our history. We have a crowding problem in our church. I mean, what a great problem. You know, we're talking about a building project. We have, we're in the fundraising phase right now. But, you know, I was kind of thinking, like, if, if coming to this church meant that the police might harass you, I wonder if we'd have a crowding problem. I wonder if I'd be, have the guts enough to be the pastor. I wonder. You know, I just wonder, like, where's my faith in Christ? Is he really my treasure and my all in all? Jesus said, whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so it's a willingness every day to keep coming back to Christ and live for Him. And so that's who's crying out here in verse 9. Those who have in the moment given their lives, even to that extent, to follow Him and be faithful. And so now they are raising the question that we talked about earlier. How long, O oh Lord, will this persist? Lord, we know that You're sovereign, and yet evil is here, and You're ruling over it, and this evil has even brought us to the end of our lives. But now, O oh Lord, the question we have is, how long will You allow this condition to persist? Will You ever 
sort of bring finality to this and let your kingdom reign in all of its fullness. And so they cry out in verse 10. They cry out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, at first, I, the first time I read that, I was like, Ooh, that's kind of a harsh prayer. <clears throat> you know, it doesn't sound like Jesus on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. Right? Or Stephen when he was being stoned and he said, Father, forgive them. Uh, you know, instead they're like, Avenge our blood. You know, what's going on? Are they just these kind of nasty people in heaven? They have sort of bitterness issues in heaven. Like, what's wrong with these people? And I think I think it's 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 key to understand what these words mean. See the word judge. That's very much a judicial courtroom language. But the word avenge. You see the word avenge. That's also a very much a courtroom sort of legal kind of language. I think we hear the word avenge and we think vigilante. We think like, um, you know, Jack Bauer going rogue and taking justice into his own hands. Or if some of you, uh, you know, read Marvel Comics, there was a Marvel Comics character called the Punisher. And the Punisher had been, you know, offended. And he just became a vigilante and went out and killed people to get back. And he's filled with anger and bitterness. Is that what's happening here? Are these, are these Christians just in heaven stewing and full of bitterness? And they're like, God, go down there and hurt those people because what they did to us. I don't think so. It's courtroom language. In other words, what they're crying out for is justice in the universe. Like, God, why won't you step in and make things right the way we know that they should be? You know, what, what they're really concerned about is God's reputation and glory. Notice how they address Him. Look back at verse 10. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true. That's what's at stake. We know You're the Lord, and we know You're holy and true. And so we know that You cannot allow this to persist forever. That at some point, God, You will intervene and You will set things right. And so, so really, it's a focus upon God's glory and wanting his reputation as the holy and just judge to be upheld. Because in other words, if God allows those two things to persist forever, the question arises, are you really holy? I mean, you know, someone who's holy and just at some point has to get fed up with this, this condition. And so they're like, God, how long? We know you're going to do it, so how long? When's it going to happen, God? How long must we wait? You know, I was thinking about the saints in heaven. Like, what problem do they have? They've got no problems. They're in heaven with the Lord. You know, they got mad or upset or having a bad day they're in the presence of christ just forever and ever you know they've entered into the state of being able to put aside all distractions and to savor and enjoy the most wonderful thing in the universe which is god's glory but i think that's precisely the point it's because they see god's glory because unlike here on earth they're not distracted by other things and their own sinful impulses because they see who god is they're like wow you are the holy judge And so, God, for the sake of your great name, for the sake of who you are, would you come and set things right and judge the earth? So so it's a call for really for God's glory and righteousness to be made known by avenging the blood of his people who bear his name. God, your people have been trampled on. Your people bear your name. Your name has been trampled on. So, Lord, rise up as the just judge. Set things right. How long, Lord, is this going to take? And in verse 11, God gives them an answer. The answer comes in two parts. First, He gives them something. And then, number two, He tells them something. So what is? So He gives them something and He tells them something. That's how God responds to this, how long, O Lord, entreaty. 
First of all, he gives them a robe. Look at verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe. You know, again, at first blush, it's like that's the answer to the problem of evil is a white robe. You know, it's like this, like, I suffered and died for Jesus and all I got was this lousy T-shirt kind of, you know. <laughs> like, uh, you know, at first it just seems a little a little strange. Why, a robe, that's the answer. But if you think about it, you know, what does is, what is a white robe symbolize in Revelation? Remember, it's all these symbols. White in Revelation is a symbol of righteousness, purity, holiness. So, so I believe what's happening here is that God is basically putting the robes of righteousness around these convicted Christians. They've, they've been killed for their faith. They've been judged guilty by the world. And God says, you're not guilty. You're innocent. Yeah, someday I'm going to set everything right. But guess what, Christians? Come here. I'm going to tell you ahead of time what the verdict's going to be. You know, shh, I'm going to tell you the verdict. Here it is, innocent. And they're clothed really with the righteous robes of Jesus. It's Christ who makes us righteous. You know, if I could just sort of pause and just kind of explain this little dimension of Christianity that I think often gets misunderstood, is that I think a lot of times people misunderstand Christianity as sort of a self-righteous rule-keeping thing. Like Christians are people who think they're better than others, and they have all these morals, and they look down at other people like the church lady from Saturday Night Live, and they think they're so superior, morally superior. But that's not Christianity at all. Christianity is just the opposite. It's when we recognize that we have no righteousness, that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we don't have, I don't have the heart to choose Jesus over my children or even over my television, okay? I am so woefully selfish and sinful that that I just come to Christ empty-handed. And I say, Jesus, you have to save me. That's what Christianity is. It's a statement of utter bankruptcy before God. And it's trusting in what Jesus did on the cross to save me. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for my sin and He gave to me His righteous robes of forgiveness and righteousness. So I can now stand before God. I can have hope of being acquitted someday, not because I'm some great person, but because Christ is my Savior. You know, I've been justified in Christ. You guys know the language of justification. Again, that's courtroom language. A justified person is a person who has been declared innocent in God's holy court of law because they're clothed, covered with the righteousness of Christ. Christ has taken my place, has taken my punishment so I can receive His status as the Son of God. It's it's the great exchange of the Gospel. And so we have hope someday of standing righteous before God. And I'll tell you, boy, that's so encouraging for me. I can get so wrapped up sometimes in what other people think of me. Wanting people to like me, wanting people to approve of me, that it might even cause me to kind of uh, downplay my faith because I don't want to make people think that I'm something weird. And no, 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 who cares what the world thinks? If God's going to give you righteous robes someday, who cares what the verdict of the world is? Even if the the verdict of the world is guilty, God says innocent. And so who cares if people think I'm narrow-minded and judgmental or whatever because I said the name of Jesus once? Who cares if they put me in that kind of box Christ has given me his righteous robes. I have nothing to fear, and we need to be bold. So they're, they're given righteous robes, the robes of Christ's righteousness in heaven, the robes of innocence. And then they're told something. Here's, what are they told? Oh, I hate this word. Wait. They were told to wait a little longer. Just a little longer. I feel like I'm a little kid again. Just wait. How long? Just a little longer. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. 
And boy, if those saints in heaven need to be told to wait, how much more do we here on earth have to wait, huh? It's like, at least they're in heaven. <laughs> it's hard to wait there. Boy, it's really hard to wait down here. I have to wait. Oh. We've got to get busy. There's work to be done, you know? We've got to go out of these doors in a few minutes here. We've got to go back out into the world. And there's work to be done. Some of us have spouses who are really hard to love. And we've got to go back out and love them. Some of us have children that um, maybe we wish we could trade them in uh, for a different model. And it's, it's really hard to love them and to, to say, you know what, I am a parent put into their life to raise them and I'm going to redouble my efforts as this primary ministry that God has given me. It's hard work. It's exhausting. Just a little longer. Keep going. One more week with Jesus. Go one more week for Christ. Go another day for Christ. Stay faithful to Him. Uh, some of us, uh, you know, we have family members who need to know the Lord. I mean, there's work to do. Look, we've got a building to build. Let's get with it. We've got churches to plant. We've got pastors to train. I'd love to see our church become like a pastor church factory that just cranks out churches and pastors. You know, and just our own little nor'easter all over the South Shore. Um, you know, there's, we need more Bible studies. Some of, you, some of you all have been sitting in Bible study for 20 years. You know so much, and you're just sitting there. It's time for you to start a Bible study because there's people in your neighborhood who need Jesus. You're like, oh, I couldn't do that. It's like, how many sermons have you heard? Go, 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 go. Let's, we've we got to go. we got to work. There's, you know, the time is short. we got to wait a little longer, and it's time now, during this time, to put our shoulder to the plow and keep bringing the gospel and loving the people God put into our lives. Whoever God brings in our lives, just to love them with the love of Christ and to allow God to open up and expand our vision for the ministry and the world around us while we wait a little longer and a little longer. But God, you still haven't answered my question. <laughs> okay, I said how long, and you gave me a robe, and you told me to wait a little longer, but that's not really an answer. <laughs> You still didn't answer the question, how long? So how long? What I want to know is, how much longer do I have to wait? It's as if God says in that last part of the sentence, fine, you want to know how long? Okay, fine, fine. I'll tell you how long. I don't know if you're going to want this answer, but I'm going to tell you. Wait a little longer until, what? The number of your fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had was completed we're waiting for the rest of the people who are supposed to die for jesus to die (laughs) there's still more work to do what if some of us here i you know i i just read i read these things very plainly and i read that and i just think what if god is going to call me someday to die for jesus wow what what if the 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 end the, the second coming is, is not here yet because there's more people who need to ultimately give their lives for Christ, and I'm one of those people. What if God is going to call one of you to go to another country? You know, we're all wound up about health care in this country. There's a lot of countries that got zero health care compared to what we have. What, what if God's calling us to go to a country where they don't have any good health care to go be a missionary there, and maybe our life expectancy shrinks because we've been in those places? You know, we're so wrapped up about our own health and our own happiness. But we just have this, need to have our vision flipped and say, it's about God's glory in the name of Christ. So we ask God, 
How long? And God says, all right, I got a question for you. Are you ready? That's God's question back to us. Are you ready? Are you really ready to do this and to serve me and even to give your life? Because we not only are called to preach the gospel and speak the gospel, but we validate the message by living the gospel. And part of what living the gospel looks like is being willing to suffer for Christ. Being willing to to joyfully go through whatever it is God may call you to go through. Not that we go out looking for suffering. No one goes out to look them, put themselves in a predicament. But when those things come, being a Christian means I joyfully accept them. It's an honor to stand with Jesus. Not just to talk about Jesus, not just to read about Jesus, but to walk in Christ. You know, we saw these baptisms buried with Christ in baptism, raised to a new life. I'm now in Christ And that means that I have to also share in his sufferings. A student is not above his teacher. If they did this to Christ, should we be surprised if we're called to walk down the same path in his name? So are you ready? We want to know, when are you coming back? You know, we get into the end time stuff and it's always all this esoteric, you know, newspaper headline reading. When's Jesus coming back? What's going on in the world? And and we try to do this, like Revelation's like some kind of decoder puzzle to figure out the end times. It's so practical. It's about being ready and loving Christ more than anything else. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I simply pray that you would make us ready. That you would so increase our love for you that, God, if a test were to come our way where we had to sacrifice something for you, even our families, even our lives, even our health, Lord, that we would be willing to do it. God, I just confess to you myself, I'm not there yet. And God, I repent. And and I just pray that you would make me ready to do whatever you want me to do. Lord, I think about this new building we're building, and who knows what what you're going to call us to do as a church. Who knows what the need is going to be, Lord. I just pray that we would be a people ready and willing to serve you for the sake of the gospel for however many years you give us on this earth. Lord, make our hope be in you and not in anything else. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please take the Red Celebration hymnal and turn to number 327, number 327, the old rugged cross. And would you stand and let's join together in responding to the word of the Lord.
Oh